Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Welcome to the Virtualization Security Podcast, episode 146. This is January 1st, 2015. So, Happy New Year to everybody. Joining me today is Mike Foley, who is in VMware's technical marketing in charge of vSphere security. So, well, not in charge, but working on vSphere security. Or is it both? I wish I was in charge. <laughs> so do I, actually. But anyways, Mike works with the um, vSphere security for the technical marketing team. Um, our other uh, panelists are out today, which is understandable. It is the first of the year. I wish them the best. So it's just Mike and I today, but um, in two weeks, we have a really good guest coming, so look forward to that. I wanted to talk about predictions for next year and highlights from last year. Okay. So what do you have? What's your highlight for last year? What was the big thing that stuck out last year? Um, well, I would have to say that um, the big thing that has stuck out for me is that um, the industry has maintained its status quo of trying to protect everything with uh, with firewalls and um, and spending far far too much time on compliance. Uh, and not enough time on security, and that identity is still key. So my prediction for next year is more of the same, and that's kind of sad. Well, our other um, panelist is even Rodriguez. He just joined us. Hey, Eben. He, I have to, I have to allow him to on. Eben is a Cloud Principal Cloud Architect at Spirit. Even, thank you for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You too. So, um, Mike just told us that from last year, the biggest security thing that stood out for him is that everybody's still concentrating on the firewall instead of actually looking at like everything. What was the thing that stood out for you in 2014? Well, I'd have to say there's a, a huge movement towards open source technology, and um, I'm still trying to figure out the security ramifications of that, but it goes along with one of my other thoughts. Uh, people used to, a lot of organizations used to go to uh, the idea of one throat to choke, where you go to one organization to get all of your compute maybe for a certain project, and they would take care of the security patches and make sure everything was set up right and maintained. However, that's with open source, a lot of people sort of diversifying their infrastructure that seems to be going away. So I see a little bit more chaos in in the security organizations because of this. Okay. So chaos in security organizations last year because of open source. I can see that. What I saw from last year 
was kind of jives with what Mike said, but it's not about the firewall. It's about the people just haven't had a chance. I mean, too many, too many security professionals are still playing whack-a-mole instead of stepping back and really looking at what they need to do to put an architecture in place, that, a security architecture that jives with the IT architectures and the business, the business directions and so forth. I just haven't seen that. I don't see anybody stepping back and taking a longer view, even if it's only five minutes a day or five minutes a week. That step back, is, I just didn't see it. Did you guys see anything like that? Or is everybody still doing whack-a-mole? Whack-a-mole. Yeah, if you have legacy in-house applications you have to support, it's definitely whack-a-mole. There's so much change that's gone on in the support organizations that a lot of the people that set up the system and kept it running smoothly for so many years may have moved on. And now you have this technical debt of your old legacy infrastructure. How are you going to support that, keep it secure? They're probably more worried about uptime you know, and, and uh, user experience than they are security sometimes. Well, and I think that's actually what we've seen, too, is people are more worried about business issues than they are about security issues. And that that tells me that the business doesn't really, hasn't yet determined that security needs to be part of the business. Now, some companies do. Banks, they do it well. They Security is right there in every architecture, every design, every business decision. Um, other highly compliant organizations are also like that, but I just don't see it in the general workplace. I think security is still considered the enemy instead of actually being a knowledge source and part of the decision-making process. And unfortunately, I just I mean, don't see that changing even in 2015. Well, on a, on a good note, uh, one thing I have seen that has helped is uh, outsourcing your application, if it's a critical application like email, uh, I've seen a lot of companies move to an outsourced SaaS model for that, so they don't have to worry about maintaining that in-house. And that way, it's, you're actually uh, delegating the responsibility of keeping things up to date, performing well, and secure to your outsourced service provider, like Office 365 is an example, right? Yes, but then you have to worry about, does Microsoft Azure provide you enough security to do what you need and does cloud meet your security requirements, not the cloud's security requirements. I mean, well, if, you look at, if you look at cloud, cloud is, I will agree, cloud is, we've gone over this podcast after podcast, that the cloud is probably more secure than an in-house um, system unless you, unless you have this really good security people working for you. Unfortunately, they're secure to their policy. They're not necessarily secure to your policy. And if your policy is the one you get judged by, you need to ensure that the cloud is meeting that policy in some fashion. Unfortunately, most clouds won't give you enough information to allow you to do that, so you actually have to pile on your own security on top of it to meet your policy. So if I was out in Office 365 and I could not ensure that my email, for example, for my business, which my policy says must be encrypted at data at rest, I can't tell the Office 365 was encrypting at data at rest. I'd have to encrypt it before it even hit that. So I have to pile on more security on something that the cloud itself should have been doing. But I can't tell because they won't tell us. That's the problem. Do you see that changing at all? That the cloud's actually going to say, hey, everybody, this is what we're doing in-house. You don't have to do it. 
I just don't see it. Now, well, there I, are, I, um, I think, but, but, like yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think um, I, I think one of the main reasons folks are are outsourcing things like email is, you know, having run my own email server at one point in time, it's a real pain in the neck trying to keep up with it. Um, you know, I mean, especially if you're running things like Postfix or something like that. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it's mind-boggling trying to trying to deal with the the the, the .cf files uh, correctly. Um, at but then again, I've been running I, my own. But I'll tell you this: I've been running my own Postfix server, SendMail server, for since um, the nine early '90s, late '80s. I I think we can all agree that you are the exception to the rule. Um, in many in many ways. Uh, the thing is, is, you know, if you are Bob's automotive supply or, or, uh, right. uh, or you, or you are, um, um, a motion picture company, um, running an email server is probably not your part of your core competency. And it's probably just easier to outsource that. And yeah, I agree. Think, and I think for many people, for for many organizations, it's the correct um, approach. Let's take it up a little. How about as, as long as the policy that this outsourced email server has, email service has, or any outsourced application has, as long as that security policy can match or be better than your own, because even though you have used a SaaS service, you have put that in the cloud, you have used somebody else to do your email, it's still your data, regardless of how you look at it, it's still your data. Even if and you it's get still your responsibility. On, and it's still your responsibility, so you still have to have it meet your policy. And as long as you, your policy is fairly lenient, I bet Bob's Automotive says my policy is my customer data doesn't leak. Well, he doesn't know what that means any other than I have my own email server. So having it out there, he may not have a much more robust policy, but a motion picture company probably does. Well, marking certain things is only readable, readable by inside and so forth. It still has to be meeting that policy, whatever it is. We don't know. I imagine right, most people don't have a good policy to start with. I don't think that whether your mail servers are located in some data center that you own or in a cloud somewhere, it's going to change how you have control over it. You can enforce these policies from a desktop or a client level. You can't really prevent people from using a different SMTP server to send mail if, with your company email address. So data leakage needs to be applied. The policies to control data leakage is what you're talking about for motion picture industry at the source of the data, not through a mail server. That might be one place you can try to detect what's going on, but it's not the only place, right? No, it's not the only, and you have to have the right compensating controls, but not everybody even knows what those are. And that's the problem is that if I am going to use... All right. Now, we're talking about outsourcing Amazon, outsourcing your IT. We talked about... What about... It makes no difference what part of my IT I outsource. 
Regardless, it makes no difference. I have a policy, it must be met. If I go to Azure, I go to Amazon and outsource my IT, I still have to meet that policy. I either have to change the policy, which you can do, right, or I have to meet that policy. So we, we agree. And if, I have to ch- and, if I, and if I change that policy, I have to have a really good reason why I changed it. Let's say we, we want to maintain the same level of security, whether we keep the, the, sor- the servers in-house and run them with the big IT shop that we control, or we outsource some of it. Is it easier taking your virtual machine hosting and delegating a lot of that infrastructure management to another organization? Does it, does it, because it's easier, does it save you money, and could it possibly be more secure? We all know it can be more secure. Whether or not it is is what we're talking about. We can't prove it is. We can, we, you and I and, and, and Mike, we all have looked at clouds. We've all worked on clouds. We've all developed clouds. We've architected them. We know how to make a cloud really secure. But the problem is, is that once you do that, do you tell your customers, here's the information you need? Amazon doesn't tell you anything. Azure, Microsoft won't tell you anything either about what's happening internally. And because they don't tell you, I can't tell if it's meeting my policy. All I know is it met their policy. Well, that's well, maybe not those are the wrong true. Yeah, maybe those are the wrong platforms. That that's not entirely true because you can you can check with your cloud provider and ask them, yes, they've met their internal policy, but they may have also gone through a uh, any number of different auditing um uh organizations and met any number of different regulatory policies as well uh they might not give you the details around how they did that or uh or what they failed at but if they have passed you know we'll say a PCI audit from a well-known auditing company then you you do have a a sense of they do know what the hell they're doing Right. You need Doesn't to have necessarily... a sense, but but before you can say that, I can I, I can get a sense. Yep, they know what they're doing. But does that apply to where my my soft my my application is located? Remember, sure. my well, audit is it, all it, about scope. All these audits about scope. And if i my machines, my stuff is not in that scope, it doesn't apply. Yeah. So if we can get back to the predictions part. Um, yeah. And, and how we we were talking about at the beginning, how uh, I predicted that it's going to be more of the same. Uh, more companies will get broken into. Uh, more companies will get breached. Um, more companies will be found to have terrible internal security practices. Um, I suspect at some point we'll probably have a large cloud breach, uh, although we may or may not hear all the details on that um i i just i just see more of the same I, it, it's just not it just you would think with all the the public talk about breaches especially in the past month and a half that you'd see a change but i really just don't see that happening even uh, what happens after a big breach <laughs> the cio the or pro- cso gets let go <laughs> they uh, do an investigation uh, try to figure out you know who did it this last one is thought to be insider threat right yeah insider access and we're back to, that's, to square that's one the where rumor we talk digital. about right where we talk about how we need to have these stronger controls we can't have the m&m security model thinking we're safe on the inside 
and uh, these guys know what they're doing, and we can trust our IT guys. We have to put controls into trust but verify. Yeah. The technology exists to give companies this visibility to, to know what's going on, but a lot of large but it's organizations never been are not using technology. it. It's never well, they're still using technology. passwords on a spreadsheet. You know, you get access to that spreadsheet and you send it around to somebody and you're like, here you go, here's the keys to the kingdom on this spreadsheet. Right. So it's, ne- it's never been about technology. It's always been about policy. It's always been about politics. It's always been, you know, the, uh, the most senior C-level person who says, I'm not going to use one of these secure ID thingies. Um, you know, I just want my password, which is my dog and, you know, my badge yeah. number. Um, How many companies and, have a password policy that say you can't share a password, yet they still have that root password that they share with everybody? It's oh, like yeah. it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to some people. I think that's well, only for I, the and, users. Well, and unfortunately, it needs to apply to everybody. But when you start thinking about that, if we're going to ask that question, we can also ask the question about, how many people even know what data is out in the cloud of their own? How many companies know, without a doubt, what data has already been exfiltrated to the cloud or to so, to a host <clears throat> provider of some form? What's the classification of that data, and do they really need to worry about it? If, if we just talk about passwords for a second, I, I this have is, a theory. This is another part of that. This What's your prediction on passwords problem? for 2015? All right. So uh, here's here's my theory on passwords. Using cloud technology forces an organization to make sure each employee has a unique password to access their portal, the data, to do their job. You're normally using some sort of uh, federated identity to get to your cloud services as an employee. Whether I'm using Amazon or Google or VMware, I don't. Uh, the best practice, and you can enforce this centrally, is to not allow sharing of passwords. So that's one recommendation or prediction for 2015? Um, well, I'm going to say I disagree. Having a cloud service does not mean you have to have a strong password or even a good password, nor a unique one. So my, my prediction around passwords for 2015 is that, and maybe this is where Eben was uh, heading, is that um, the use the, the the wide the wider spread use of cloud services will start to get people a lot more comfortable with using SAML authentication SAML uh, uh, authentication uh, or SAML authorization, and um, that could open up the uh, possibility for more uh, use of multi-factor identification tied in with SAML. And what you'll probably see is more people going, wow, I only have to log in once and then just click on a button to get to my cloud service. Why can't I do that for internal apps? Mm-hmm. I, I can see that. I, 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 think, I think the use of the, the, a lot of cloud services are making use of this capability. And when people see just how easy it is to use cloud services for any number of different reasons, plus the, oh, I only have to enter my secure ID once, and then I can get to, you know, uh, the, the, my email, my SAP, my this or that, through, by clicking a button, 
Why can't I get to my internal apps that way? That may start driving a lot more discussion around making, uh, making it easier to log in. So we're back to an SSO story. Um, but then that turns around and starts saying, well, then let's start talking about applying better authentication of an identity. And really at the end of the, and then you can leverage that into a least privileged discussion further on down the line. Because if you look at some of the major hacks that have gone on recently, uh, especially the, the rumors around um, the, the motion picture one that uh, it may have been an inside job, a lot of that could have been, a lot of that impact could have, and now we're all just, you know, De uh, dealing with publicly available guesses uh, by a number of people of what happened. Um, no insider information here. Uh, it, that if you think about a, if they had implemented a least privileged model and had implemented two-factor authentication, um, that the imp and and better uh, auditing of um, of uh, administrators that had been let go and the shutting down of all their access, then a lot of this probably wouldn't have happened. The number of yeah. attacks were based on not HR and security not being in sync. Yeah. Yeah, so, and so HR and security, how about uh, shadow IT within an or, uh, any organization usually has different little servers that are set up and, oh, I'll just make an account for you over here, you're the new guy. Who's going to make sure that that account gets deleted when that new guy leaves? But if you don't have federated authentication, you're going to miss out on all that. HR so is not even a prediction involved. Is that, a prediction is that there's going to be several new – federated ID will be more popular than it has been. Would you say that? I wish I, wish I could say that was a prediction and will come true. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is more predictions or lessons learned from 2014 and recommendations for next year. <laughs> I mean, we could I, I think we're, as the security guys here, we're a little cynical, aren't we? I mean, do we believe this <laughs> will happen? <laughs> well, just a tad cynical. I mean, a federated ID across clouds and across services inside of your own organization is not a bad idea. Will people pick up on it? Will SAML push people to do that more and more? Maybe. Will cloud services do that more and more? I can see what Mike is saying, where it will grow and eventually we'll get to the point where federated IDs and we're passing yeah. all sorts of SAML tokens around based on various different forms of authentication, whether that's behavior, yep. location, a username, password, whatever. It's going to be a number of things. Yeah, as more and more uh, service-based offerings uh, come around where things are hosted somewhere, the federated identity is just going to be something that you take for granted. And hopefully it will catch on and people will understand the, the ease, how it makes their life easier, and they don't have to type in passwords everywhere. So do you see Google, Salesforce, Facebook, Twitter being that federated ID, one of those? Well, because actually, I'm um, kind of using it now. There's a lot of technology that allows you to maintain your um, your current Active Directory or whatever type of LDAP you're using for your organization, your ID, from within your organization and map that out to those public services. So I can log on to Salesforce with my company username, you know, my company email address, and my, my password. If I change my password at my desk, 
uh, I have to update my phone so that my email comes into my phone with my new password. Well, I use that same password to log into Salesforce or the SaaS-based services out there on the Internet. That's what Mike's talking about with SAML and federated uh, IDs. Well, that exists. I mean, there's a number of different companies and number of, I mean, like things like Salesforce bake it at. So a lot of the products, SaaS products, actually bake in single sign-on that allows you to go to any type of authentication service for it. They have to uh, be redirected through uh, a service like Ping or one of those type of identity management brokers. Well, there's actually there's several ways it can be done, but those services exist. Yeah, and for the most part, they do use SAML, right? Yes. And it's also how some of the security tools for SaaS work. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, by, by, let's elaborate on that a little bit. So we've talked about this in the past. There's a number of um, reverse proxy type security solutions that are displacing firewalls for cloud-based services. And you don't have to, with the firewall, you have to pass the traffic through the firewall for it to be able to detect and block it. And with these cloud-based SAML services, they actually intercept the login information and then direct your traffic through them from the, the cloud broker. So if I'm trying to log into Salesforce as an example and I'm updating a spreadsheet, it will when I log in, I if I have if my company set this up correctly, I get intercepted and I go through this reverse proxy and it can do the uh, data detection for me. If I try entering in a social security number or credit card or some other type of PII that I'm not supposed to put in Salesforce, it will block it out. And we've talked to some of those vendors on this podcast. Yes. You can look them up. There's a number of them, but they actually call them transparent proxies instead of reverse proxies, or actually transparent gateways, but they are, in essence, reverse proxies. So those are all good. Um, any other predictions for the next this coming year or lessons learned that people should apply? So I make some predictions around DevOps, and I, I see that um, security and uh, the company I work at, Spirant, uh, deals with performance and security testing. And um, we've seen a lot of our customers take our products and, and move them closer to the developers. So we see the shift left. I think um, there's a number of code quality products and performance products and virtualization products that help with this. So I see the technology that used to be just for production or QA getting closer to the developers. Yeah, um, unfortunately, there's not many security products that fall into that realm. There's a lot of pro other products, but not many security. But yes, I would agree. Well, one thing I that, that happened from a security perspective, yeah, I can say from a security product specific uh, solution, there's things that do uh, static code analysis. You mentioned HP Fortify on our last podcast. And um, that used to be something that was done as part of QA or after the fact when your code is produced, you, you can run scans on it and see what your code quality is, see if there's any security breaches, and then you'd produce a report and eventually try to get the developers to have access to that. But now with CI, with the continuous integration pipeline, we can integrate those security tools such as static code analysis and dynamic code analysis and give developers instant feedback when they check in their builds as to whether or not they have security uh, potential security problems in their code right away. You, but do either you see a trend in DevOps to actually involve security or at least get the training they need to do security as part of that? I mean, ideally, you'd want a developer with a security mindset 
be a part of that? I, I would I would hope so, but I think we'll have to wait to see what the sessions at RSA Conf and InfoSec will be. And if there's very few there, then the message isn't there yet. I don't see any on the ones I've seen so far, so. Yeah. Um, the message so, isn't there yet. But, you know, it, yeah, it, it, Good. I get it. Yeah, I guess, I guess uh, after we have after we finish the the DevOps predictions, then uh, maybe one of the uh, the next set of predictions we can talk about is uh, um, where where we think security conferences should be shifting to. So, well, I have no DevOps predictions. I just see a trend not to involve security. So security I, itself I, I, doesn't necessarily want to be involved. Yeah, so I, I see a lot more discussion around DevOps. Um, it will be interesting to see where, um, you know, things like OpenStack go. Uh, I think it's still extremely early in the game for things like OpenStack. I mean, you, it's still a very hands-on. You're trading the capital expenditure of um, of a um, a vendor provided solution for the people expenditure of DevOps guys to take this open source stuff and make it work within your environment so it's it, there's a trade-off there how many customers do that it will be interesting to see um, I, I think that the, the biggest challenge will be uh, convincing the developer community in companies that don't necessarily run on the bleeding edge of the benefits of DevOps. And those customers probably have security guys who aren't as focused on things as they probably should be. I mean, those are probably security guys who don't listen to this podcast. I would say that my prediction is that security leaders, leaders in the organization for security, will start stepping back and giving the organization a, a long view type of approach. I'm hoping that this year security practitioners will realize there is no silver bullet. I'm just hoping this is going to happen and that you need a, you need a solid security architecture. You need a solid understanding of your environment, your business, in order to apply the right compensating controls. So if half your business is SaaS, where's your compensating controls? We talked about that earlier, about the need for clouds to meet your policy, or you just still meet your policies while they're while you're using the cloud. There's many ways to do that. And they need to look at it from a long view, I would think. And I'm hoping that happens this year. I don't know if it will, but it'd be kind of cool if it did. Yeah, I think yeah. the security will just happen organically, um, either where there's a business opportunity as a an app team is upgrading to a new architecture, they can include security in that 
process or security could try to get plugged into that process. If it's agile process, they need to participate in the daily stand-ups and the scrums and, and all that. And the planning, they need to write user stories. Or organically, you could either participate in the development of a new application moving to a new architecture, or you could wait for a breach, right? And then everybody's in reactionary mode. And um, use back what can we do to throw and out the And then you do just enough fire. to get you out of the out of the hole. And you basically are still doing whack-a-mole. Well, I guess in a sense it's just at a larger scale, right? So when there's a breach, normally they, they contain the, the short term. And you, no, you normally see a lot of resumes flying around about three to six months after the breach, people looking for jobs, uh, you know, Old guys go out, you guys come in, and hopefully you can capture that momentum to, to do something positive in the organization. It depends how serious they are about it up the executive staff level. Okay. I would agree with that. And Mike? What? Your la I mean, you. What do you think about that? What do you think about what the change handover? Will that force the breach happens? Will that force people to look at the long view, or is that they just still going to play whack-a-mole? Um, I predict that the recent hacks of the past month and a half um, will be a faded memory by Q2. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that, unfortunately. That's not a prediction. That's a truism. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. It will, it will make for um, a very interesting set of uh, sessions at a security conference sometime late next year uh, or this time next year. And it will probably have some effect on some compliance regulations. Uh, but beyond that, is it going to change the way people do business? No. 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 But it will make for great fodder for, for sessions. And that leads into your the question you had before, is how security conferences should change. Well, I was I was hoping by now that uh, there'd be an awful lot more discussion at security conferences around um, not necessarily how you secure your product, but how you change your culture. And I really just don't see that. How do you, you change know, your culture I, to be more security I, aware and conscious? Once did a talk at a security conference about, you know, how does security get a seat at the table? And the interest was there, but the interest, the answers, the question, the results, or what they have to do to do that, it's not something they would implement. It's not in their culture. I mean, if you as security want a seat at the table for whatever it is, this long view or, you know, virtualization or cloud services or new application, the first thing you need to do is go in and listen. Don't say a word. Just listen. Learn. Once you've learned the business, the, the, the business decisions that led up to this, once you learn what the product will do, then it's time to actually offer some suggestions, some knowledge. It's 
it's not a chance to say no. You got to put the K N O W, not the N O, in innovation. Put the knowledge in it. But I just don't see that happening. I mean, most people just <coughs> when I said when I said sit there, you got to basically sit there and listen and, and learn. They just kind of looked at me and said, "Well, we don't have that much time." But yeah. that's, that's what it is. It takes time. You've got to learn what the business is doing. You've got to learn what the product is doing before you can say, hey, this is a set of compensating controls. Just because, because it stores data at disk doesn't mean it has to be encrypted at rest if that data has nothing in it that's useful. Or PII or meets, doesn't, meet, doesn't have anything in it that has anything to deal with your classified data. It's yeah, not, you know, I, I, I tried. I tried to have. I tried to have that argument with people a number of years ago when I was at RSA, uh, saying, "Why do you feel the need to encrypt everything when you can just find out the 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 data that contains stuff that needs to be encrypted and just encrypt right. that?" And right. the response was always, um, "Yeah, but what if I miss something?" Or what if it missed <laughs> something? I'd rather just encrypt everything because what it ends up being is, as we've all discussed in the past, uh, and this will be yet another prediction, uh, my prediction around encryption for uh, 2015 is that encryption will still be a checkbox item. Unfortunately, people, will, people just want to encrypt. People just want to encrypt because... By saying I've encrypted everything, there's it leaves no doubt that something is left unencrypted. And I've met my requirements, I've met my checkbox, I've passed my audit. Let me move on to the next thing. Yeah, but then which you're totally more, missing which is the adding point. more firewall rules. Right. You have to have a um a data classification policy that says, you know, this I don't encrypt this type of data because it's already in the public. I do encrypt this type of data because it's sensitive. Um, you need to specify the levels of encryption. And then what about key management? You know, it's not just encryption. You have to track the keys and who has access to them. And that's a whole other problem that people sounds like they're missing. They're just talking they about encryption. They're more, more complex a subject than just encrypting at all. But I kind of agree with Mike. I don't see that changing even though it should. Especially with cloud uh, technologies, because as soon as you, if you don't know where your data is in the cloud, then you may not have actually a chance to say it is doesn't need to be encrypted. If it's already public uh, information, why bother? You know, if I track that someone put X information A into Dropbox, do I have to encrypt it? If it's already well-known public information, absolutely not. It's not even worth hunting down. Right. It's a waste of my time to do that. But if I have to hunt it down by policy, I have to do it, regardless of where it is. It's not just in your own data center. You've got to look everywhere in the hybrid cloud, everywhere you you have your customers and your everywhere your employees are going at the very least. So you have to be fairly directed. You can't look at everything. I just don't see that changing either. I think there's going to be a lot more push for an anti-cloud security posture, even though it's basically putting your head in the sand because everybody's using it anyways. 
cloud is so happening whether you simple. want it or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by That's keeping the things simple, the idea behind an anti-cloud security posture would be, well, let's not make things so complicated. If it's out there in the cloud, I can't really track it. It's simpler, right, just to keep it local. Is that the idea behind that? Yeah. The, uh, the whole idea is that they ignore the cloud completely. And I see yeah, well, more of that happening. You're ignoring a lot of things in that situation, aren't you? <laughs> oh, you're ignoring pretty much half your business probably. Right. Yeah, keeping things simple is is not going to be secure if you have to do business with the outside world, if you need to hire people to help you uh, with your projects, if you have third-party uh, companies helping you with projects. It, you know, Keeping things simple might work if you're a two-person company and you just keep everything in a drawer in your office well, where you go every day. Right? I wouldn't say it's keeping things simple. I think it's more hiding your head in the sand and ignoring a large part of the industry large part of your own business. Well, Again, that's the whole question about are you are you looking at the business or are you just trying to do looking at some sort of compliance regulation? If you're looking at the business, you'll do the right thing. If you're looking at a regulation, you have to do that, but you also have to do it in a business context. Yeah, you have to understand there's new technology coming along all the time. The cloud is here to stay. It's not going away. You need to understand that it can save your company significant amounts of money, and it's not you can't run it the way you used to run your old IT shop. You need to learn new ways of doing things, have new skill sets to keep it secure and set it up correctly. So I'll make a yet another prediction. In 2015, we'll be saying exactly what we've been saying since 29, <laughs> uh, which is exactly what Eben just said a few minutes ago. You need to embrace change, move forward, and start figuring out ways to take advantage of the technology that's there today. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. most most will just keep doing things, you know, what is the way changing, they've always done it. What is what is changing is the laundry list of technology, and um, we we have this slide that we like to show is the technology adoption curve. Uh, if you're an early adopter and more of a risk taker, you bring on you can adopt new technology quickly you know you see stories of companies taking on this brand new building their whole architecture on some brand new type of of technology you know going 100% cloud no legacy right these new startup companies can do that they're risk takers but there's older companies that are more established they have big IT shops huge data centers they're not just going to overnight start using the cloud they have this investment in old technology and they're more laggards in technology adoption so what changes every every year as we make these productions these predictions is which technology is now mainstream. So I think that's what we're talking about really. And again, just to repeat mine, I see open source becoming more and more mainstream with the OpenStack technology taking off and and more and more companies, even conservative companies, bringing out OpenStack initiatives. Look at VMware announced an OpenStack project this year, right? Yep. Or last year. It's 2015, so last year. <laughs> I think you're going to see OpenStack in the industry, but I, given how complex it is, you're going to see a lot more distributions being created to try to ease that compl- complexity. And that's what we're sure. doing. That's what others are doing. So there's going to be a lot more competition in there. But someone's going to end up coming out on top. 
and I don't know who that's going to be. There will be a red hat of the OpenStack world, and there isn't one right now. It would be nice to know who it's going to be, whether it be red hat or somebody else. I just don't know. I think but maybe that will happen in 2015. Just like how old is Linux now? How many Linux distributions are there? There's different, Thousands. you know, a lot of people love Ubuntu. A lot of people love Red Hat and CentOS. And there's still people using SUS and other flavors out there and paying money for it. Yeah, there's only three major distributions, but there's thousands of individual distributions. Anybody can build a distribution on Linux. So but I, I, I predict the same thing will happen with OpenStack. It, it's yeah. going to be confusing. but one way or another, you will use OpenStack in your organization in the next year. There will be a red hat of OpenStack. We just don't know who it is yet. I so the question is, if if you're using OpenStack, how are you going to secure it? Because there is no benchmarks for that. There's a security guide, but it's pretty uh, pretty vague. It just gives some generalities. And like you said, it's it's OpenStack is a complex thing. It has a uh, you know MySQL database servers. It has other types of open source technology built into it, you need to secure each one of those individual components. Well, an open stack basically has said that the security of it is left up to the people implementing it. Yeah. But if you're an open stack reseller or distributor like Piston or Red Hat or VMware now, you're going to need to make sure that your customer is using that if you're selling them this open stack distro, that, that they're secure, that they can be set up correctly, right? Well, the pistons of the world do that, but they meet a policy that they've set up that meets, to, to be honest, it follows all the standard best practices of a virtual environment. They don't differ between distributions. How you implement them different, differ, but the actual goal of securing a virtual environment is the same regardless of whose it is. Well, one, one thing that they uh, do definitely differ from is the out-of-box installation experience. So you can tell right away if you try these out, some will have you uh, set up SSL certificates right off the bat, and mm -hmm. they don't even have a, a root password. You know, you need to have LDAP set up and individual usernames and passwords or, or type two-factor authentication is supported out of the box on some distros, while others don't even support it. You know, you have to go to a third-party solution that they don't I support. I agree with that. But as I said, that's just how you the concepts of securing a virtual environment are the same regardless of whose it is. How you implement it's different. So we're going to see different implementations of security inside of OpenStack. But the concepts of never mixing your never mixing right. your data plane and your management plane, well, that best practice is the same regardless. How you do it's different. Uh, yeah, good one. Yeah, I wonder how many companies uh, beginning an OpenStack project in 2015 will make security one of the top uh, questions that they ask about when they choose their OpenStack distribution. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'd be surprised if there's more than two. I mean, other than you and me and anybody else that does security for a living, in the virtual environment, I don't think that question will be asked. <clears throat> I also see that as more and more data is compromised, I think the governments are going to get involved in a much 
deeper way. Ooh, what what do you what, what uh, give me a prediction around this? What do you mean by in a deeper way? Uh, after the fact, as far as uh, investigations, nope. like we saw with the FBI in the oh, latest well, breach. I think that will be the case regardless, but I'm also thinking that there will be put forth some legislation in various countries for uniform IDs, ways of tracking all that so that people can feel safe about their data. Well, that'll be disturbing. Well, and it will, and I think it will be. I think it will eventually come to, to the U.S. I think I already know it's gone to other countries. But I think that you're going to see legislation put forth to do that because the risk to individuals is pretty high. And the whole role of government is to safeguard the individual as well as the country. It would be disturbing to see what it is. Just like other pieces of legislation, I think that this is something that is being worked on right now in government to come up with something. I'd call it a security rights or something like that type of thing, but I think it's going to be about government getting the fingers into more and more. And dictating, instead of PCI, which is to be PCI compliant, is not a government thing. It is an industry thing. It's industry compliance requirement for anybody dealing with credit cards. There may be something in the government past HIPAA that will be applied to everybody instead of just small test doctors and, and things like that. I just feel that's coming. I mean, have you looked at the latest HIPAA documentation that came out last year? HIPAA used to be a couple hundred pages now, long. Now it's close to a thousand. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. They put a lot of stuff in there most people have no clue about. Including not, themselves? Including themselves. Absolutely. If you have to be HIPAA compliant, it's now a real pain. I mean, what's PCI compliancy? How many pages is that? 300 maybe at most? And it's pretty darn good. I also predict that PCI is going to get a little bit more rigid. Right now it's not. It has a lot of leeway. I see a lot of that leeway disappearing. It's going to get extremely prescriptive. Instead of doing being the most prescriptive compliance, I think it's going to get extremely. So you guys with, that, that? with that, with that, um, uh, how any predictions on the adoption of things like Apple Pay? I don't what? see people adopting it. I really don't. Adopting what? Apple Apple Pay. Pay. NFC. Apple Pay. Oh gosh, or, aren't there some uh, big and, partnerships already? Oh yeah, there's huge okay. partnerships. Um, I, I, I look at it as um, at what point do you start seeing uh, NFC chips in um, uh, laptops, desktops, and thin clients, and at what point does 
your iPhone become your all-around security token? That could be interesting. Right. So, well, can you go to the grocery store and and use Apple Pay today? Yes. Yep. Depends on the grocery store. Can you pay for gas with it? Again, uh, they just announced something. There's rumors floating around that came out uh, late last week or this week on a number of deals that um, that um, Apple is working on with a number of the large gas station. Um, companies right. around doing just that. What they need to do at that stage is put the NFC reader out at the pump. A lot yeah. of gas stations already have an NFC reader within the um, within the, the the little store. Oh yeah, yeah. You got to walk inside. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Uh, I mean, more, I think it's I'm great to see in, this. I'm more I'm more interested in seeing it from uh, an enterprise identity standpoint. Now, see that would be cool. Right? I'm already starting to bug some friends at RSA. When does the RSA Secure ID token get Apple Pay uh, uh, Touch ID support? So that I don't <laughs> have to enter a PIN. All I need to do is touch my finger. And I'm wondering whether or not that's actually really good to do, given the fact that most there's a number of groups out there that all they do is they steal Apple devices. They're called Apple Pickers. And they steal all these devices. And if you have, your device is your token, is that safe? Well, if my device is my token, and the only way to... It's, it's as safe as if they stole my hardware token. Which means not safe at all. Well, they still need the pin. My hardware token doesn't have a pin. That's right. The pin is something you know. No. Don't even need anything. I just look at it. That gives me a number. That is my it gives me the pin to use. No, 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 no. 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 Yeah, you can't in use order, that. It, in order, to use, in order to use an RSA token that's set up appropriately, you uh, enter in your PIN code and then, uh, into the token, and then the PIN plus the pass plus the token code becomes your passcode, and that is what you use to log in. Um, I'm not seeing that, but my token, I just uh, type in the digits and go... You have it set up wrong. Are no, you talking about your are you talking about your Google Auth token? No. Your RSA token. I have an RSA token. And you've never set up a pin. Never have to type one in. It's just a small little thing about two inches long and a half an inch wide. Right. But when you log into something using it, you have to you have to have at some point set up a pin. Unless you set oh, you it up set as up a, a unless you set it up as a pinless token, or you set it up as a secondary auth method. You, in that case, you set it up as a pinless token. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of customers don't or shouldn't set up their RSA tokens that way. So what I want is I don't want to type in a pin. I just want to have 
start my token app and touch my finger to the touch ID and have it retrieve the pin and inject it into the token. While passing on the... Um, yeah, I can see that. <clears throat> but I would also want passed on location data, device information, the fact that you're using a fingerprint. Yeah, but that, that means a massive amount of change at the... Um, not if I'm a using massive SAML. amount of change to the back-end server. Hmm. Not if I'm using SAML. Right? It's all in there. I just picked the part I need of a SAML token. It doesn't work that way. No, it does. It can, but most people don't know how to do it. No. RSA Secure ID does not work that way today. I said a SAML token, not... If I can convert it to a SAML token, I just include in my SAML token all this other information, not an RSA token. We'll have this discussion offline because you you are very much misunderstanding how yeah. Secure ID works. Let's uh, let's agree that we it would be nice to have uh, simpler secure authentication solutions and using your <coughs> phone that you already have with you. Uh, you can do that today. You can have your RSA smart token. That's how I have mine on my phone. And so it's very convenient not to have to carry around a separate device. But I still have to open up the app and remember my PIN, type it into the app, and get a token, and then type that token into the web interface or whatever I'm logging into my VPN client. It'd be great if I could just tap my phone to my computer laptop and have that go straight in there, whichever computer right. I'm on. That's, I mean, that'd, that'd be, be awesome. Great. The best way to yeah. do that is through SAML, but I like what you're talking about. But well, the, the way the token gets passed back should. through to the system you're authenticating to could be SAML or some other sort of authentication system. But um, we're just talking about the um, the token itself. How does that, where does that electronically get transferred? And a, a new little NFC wireless way would be awesome. Yes. The fact that Mike's talking about it is kind of encouraging to me, so I'm hoping that uh, we might oh, I haven't, around that I next have not, year. I have, not talked, I have not talked to anyone at RSA about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. But it would be cool. It would be. I think you're right. The device, I mean, the, the phone's becoming the gateway to the cloud and to everything else. So why not make it your main primary authentication source? My only yes. problem with that is that people share the devices still. So there's no way to say it's uniquely you. Not yet. That is what Touch ID does. Yeah, you put your fingerprint on there. Um, yeah. Apple Pay accommodates now, that today, right? Now, you could, you could record two people's fingerprints, but at that stage, you're doing something grossly stupid. And well, we, all know, we all know that stupid will always win. Hey, I will say so something I uh, positive either, on a security uh, note related to what we're talking about. Have any of you set up a family sharing with Apple ID and the yes. iCloud yes. whole thing? That is the yes. awesomest thing. We used to have to actually share usernames and passwords to try to get each other's phone devices set up because for one reason or another, we can't remember which iPhone we plugged into which laptop and did the sync and where that app came from. So we're constantly asking each other's usernames and passwords for their Apple ID so we can get our music, our movies, and other things onto our iDevices. 
And now that they have set up AppleShare, the family sharing plan, we don't have to do that. We can each have our own unique password, yet still share information. So kudos to Apple for doing that. I think that's improved security for Apple users all over the world. Yep. yep. And, I, and I really think that it's security solutions at the smartphone level that are going to, in the next couple of years, really start to affect security solutions at the enterprise level. I honestly think at this stage, the enterprise-level software security solutions are woefully behind some of the consumer-level uh, security solutions. So there's going to be a trickle-down effect from um, consumer technology into the enterprise. Right. Apple is making it really simple to be more secure. I would agree with that. I'm also wondering how much iCloud is required to do this. Uh, on your phone itself, nothing. The reason why I'm asking that is that iCloud has its own little idiosyncrasies. Sure. But when I, if I have an app that supports Touch ID, it doesn't need iCloud. All it needs is the app needs Touch ID to open up. So my, my 1Password app, for example, um, I can just hit Touch ID and it will open up 1Password. I don't have to put the full password in unless I restart the phone or unless I have uh, X number of failed Touch ID attempts. Then it will ask for the full password. Mm-hmm. That's the problem but it, with the iPhone is it's still you can still use the full password, and that's actually fairly easy to figure out because people use really bad passwords. Of whatever it is. Yeah, but you know that's that that's a that's that's a education problem. Hmm. The Touch ID is is purely a key to unlock the vault that stores the the shitty password. Yep. <laughs> but it's better than it was before. At least it's not sitting in an Excel spreadsheet in a folder marked passwords. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Which we will still say find in some companies to this day. Yeah. In the, throughout the year. Well, well I think we're at the end of our time. Yes, we are. We've actually gone over it a little bit. Guys, thank you very much. If any of these predictions come true, we'll find out at the end of next year. <laughs> right on. All right. Thanks. All right. Happy New Bye. Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.